Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today. We discuss the latest updates from the battlefront, and we talk about what our reporter found when he entered the recently recaptured city of Izium. We also analyse the meeting between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, which took place yesterday in Uzbekistan. We are facing a very serious crisis in energy caused by Putin's war in Ukraine. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. Where Ukraine is. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 16th of September, day 205. And today, I'm joined by senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant and our assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley. I started by asking Roland for the latest news from Ukraine. The Russian forces are meant to be fortifying this line um, near the Oskil River, um, uh, ready to repel any further um, Ukrainian offensives. Um, I saw some reports earlier about the Ukrainians kind of pushing onwards beyond the Oskil River. Um, I'm not sure how reliable they are at this point. Sergei Gaidai, uh, the governor of Luhansk region, has warned it will be a tough fight to take back Luhansk. And in fact, he said in his message on Telegram, uh, the, the rapid collapse is not going to be repeated. So he's he's bracing people um, for a long haul. And you get the same thing from Western officials, actually. Jens Stoltenberg was on the uh, Today programme this morning and his message, the same as we've been getting from Western officials speaking kind of anonymously to us, is, um, you know, don't try and think that we can forget about this long haul. We've still got to be in it for this long haul. Um, don't get lulled into the, 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 the nice rosy idea that This is the beginning of the end. Um, It's not. Roland, you and Sergio Olmos have been writing a lot about what the Ukrainians are discovering during their counteroffensive. Yesterday, you you both wrote this fascinating article about what the army has found in Izium. Could you talk us through uh, what the Ukrainians found when they retook the city? Yes. So, um, as I was saying before, the Ukrainians have had a very um, tight leash on the press um, but more space is opening up and, and press are now getting into Izium, which was, was the really big target of this offensive. That was the most important um, objective um, of the whole operation. So fascinating to, to, to see that. Um, Sergio uh, got in there yesterday. 
Um, there is basically no mobile phone signal. It was extremely difficult to get hold of him um, and difficult for him to file. So again, one of these one of these things we do on the paper. If someone's in that situation, he's kind of ringing stuff in. I'm talking him through it and 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 I'm kind of taking it down and putting the paper together. So um, just an interesting example of that kind of collaboration in in these kinds of war zones. Um, so a few things stood out to me. Um, I think the main thing, the, the immediate impression um, from from what we saw, from what Sergio said and, and from the videos he sent me, um, the speed and drama of this Russian collapse is evident everywhere. He was talking about... Um, right outside town um you know there's this monument on the edge of Izum that says Izum, where ukrainian soldiers have been taking selfies so right next to that there's some woodland um which seems to have had a a russian firing position in it. it's just like loads and loads of abandoned these rockets for the uragan multiple rocket launcher just scattered about abandoned uh, some of them exploded some of them not um self-propelled howitzer basically on its side um further into town abandoned tanks everywhere you know ukrainian soldiers are clambering onto tanks kind of trying to get them going um you'll have seen uh, i think a bit of video on the telegraph website that sergio filmed yesterday about that really dramatic stuff um and then he got into this uh, russian command center which had been pulverized completely wiped out and the ukrainian soldier the officer he was with uh, said look this was a high mars strike so we've we've got eyes on the aftermath of a high mars strike and it just looks like a hurricane's hit it i mean just the whole thing smashed up um not especially burnt because it's a blast it's not an incendiary thing uh, but absolutely smashed to bits and there was this there was just this this little moment of poetry um sergio said to me yeah and there was this newspaper on the floor and it's like, okay he's, he's passed past me the picture it's um, Red Star, which is the uh, the Russian army's newspaper. And it had this headline um, about it, the story on it was about a very dry story about some meeting with Sergei Shoigu who was chairing in May about kind of results of the operation, but also kind of getting ready for uh, the next exercises in June and all, all this kind of dull stuff that the Minister of Defense had said in a fairly boring speech. Um, and the headline on it, on it was something like, um, uh, with precise concentration for reliable results or something like that. It was about precision. Um, and this was lying on the floor of something that was wiped out by exactly by precision, by these precision weapons um, that we've been talking about, um, which, I don't know, war sometimes gives you, gives you poetry. Um, the other big thing that, that I really noticed, which Sergio was talking about, in his conversations with people there, um, there was a slight hesitance to speak. Not too many civilians on the street. Um, those who did emerge elderly, looking for some aid, um, a certain wariness of speaking to journalists, um, which which I think is understandable when suddenly the town you're living in changes hands. You've been living under occupation for six months. The Russians have told you they're here forever. Um, and then suddenly a new army comes in, and it might be your army. You might be quite pleased to see them, but it is men with guns. And they came in very suddenly. And what if the other guys come back? And what the hell is going on? And um, everybody he's spoken to has talked about this intense wave of fear during the battle to retake it. It was a brief battle, but my God, it's scary um, when shells are coming in. So a degree of trauma and the most interesting, I think this is an important thing that, that especially um, 
maybe the Ukrainian government wants to wants to wants to to paper over. So he talked to a guy. Um, he was a pro-Ukrainian. He said he was arrested for for destroying some Russian ammunition in his own tiny little partisan action. But he said, um, "Look, when the Russians came in in March, about two thirds of the population of the town left." Of those who stayed, his guess was about half of them had some kind of Russian sympathy. And he said, this isn't, I'm not calling them collaborators, but they just, you know, they drank in the propaganda. They began to believe the propaganda about the Russian world. This is a Russian-speaking area, quite close to the border. You know, lots lots of, of connections back and forth. Um, and uh, internet was cut off. There was no Ukrainian radio or television. So all you're getting was the Russian line. No one knew if Ukraine was going to come back. Said, so, you know, people believed in Ukraine, but they were slowly losing hope. Um, and I think that is that is a nuance that is quite important. Um, and it's it's going to be a challenge for the Ukrainians dealing with this as they retake towns, especially as they go further east. Um, because when you're under occupation, you know, people make compromises. Um, and I think there's probably a wariness about people who were living under occupation. You know, are they going to say I'm a collaborator? Um, it's a, it's one of those nuanced grey areas of war, um, which I think we should keep an eye on. Thanks, Roland. And the Ukrainian government has come out today and said that one of the things they've they've discovered that these what they call the new mass graves of civilians. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what they think they found and and how reliable that might be? Yeah, so it was late last night um, after we'd filed um, and gone to press. Um, these images emerged of uh, a big improvised grave site um, in woodland near Izum. Um, now, a few a few nuances. Um, uh, Ukrainian police have said about 400, just over 400 people have been to be believed buried in one site. We've just heard news breaking on the wires of another site with maybe another 200 people there. Now, Sergio has been speaking to um, a guy on the ground, a local guy, um, who's told him these were people who were killed in Russian shelling, um, which probably means um, in the battle in March. So it took a month for the Russians to capture Izum in March. Um, these don't seem to be mass graves as in a big pit full of bodies. And they seem to be mostly individually marked, but often with a cross that just has a number or just says VSU, so Ukrainian Armed Forces, um, unidentified body kind of thing. So um, definitely evidence of lots of people dying. How they died, we don't know. At the moment, I would be wary of um, attempts to compare this with Srebrenica or something like that. Um, because there is a distinction between people who were, were killed in indiscriminate shelling and taking people to the woods and putting bullets in their head. So I think we've got to be quite careful about how that's reported. And more details of that surely will come out in the next days and weeks and we'll be able to paint a much fuller picture. But it's worth to note at this point, as you said, the wariness of ascribing what this is too, too early on. Yes. Um, and and I, I should also add, look, I mean, just because I'm saying, like, don't don't assume this was a, a Srebrenica-style massacre or a Butcher-style massacre where the army's gone crazy and just gone around massacring civilians. Um, you know, this still that that that's kind of not to, that is not playing it down. Right? Um, if our source is 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 right that most of these people are people who were killed in the battle by the Russian shell, I mean, that just tells you how destructive 
an artillery-driven war is on civilian areas. Um, we're talking about hundreds of graves, hundreds of corpses. Um, just imagine what we're going to find in Mariupol um, when we get in there. Well, thank you very much for that, Roland. I think that might dovetail um, into something else we need to talk about, Francis, the Helsinki Commission. This is evidence given to US lawmakers on Thursday about Russian treatment of uh, POWs and civilians. Can you talk a little bit about that? What what did these uh, US politicians hear? Certainly. Well, we've been hearing from a volunteer Ukrainian medic who was held captive for three months by Russian forces in Mariupol. And they have told U.S. lawmakers as part of this Helsinki, Helsinki Commission, which is this U.S. government agency created in part to promote international compliance with human rights. She's spoken about cradling and comforting fellow prisoners as they died of torture and the inadequacy of the medical treatment that they were receiving it's pretty harrowing to read, actually. And it speaks, I think, to, of course, the numerous incidents that we've heard from throughout the war. Um, and I expect we will hear much more of these. And this is the thing, is that this is just scratching the, the surface of what I think we're going to hear. And another issue, I think, that inevitably we will have to be discussing more in detail as the months go on and more of Ukraine is liberated is what has happened to those people not only who've been killed to Roland's point but those who have been transported away who've been taken to Russia there's still a lot of unanswered questions about where they have gone what's happened to them the kind of processing that they've gone through and I think that as I say it's very early days with these commissions and legal activity but already what we're hearing is truly horrific and I think it's going to get a lot lot worse. And just before we talk about some other updates, uh, Francis, you've been looking at um, the Biden administration's announcement on Thursday that it'll send another $600 million worth of military aid to Ukraine. Can you talk us through that? Yes. Um, well, obviously, another very significant amount. And I think it's worth saying that whilst we've become very much accustomed to it now, the level of American support is incredibly significant. I mean, I think we're past $25 billion now. Um, to put that into relative context, I think most European countries are around, you know, in the higher brackets or around sort of four billion, something. I think that's the, the British number. I mean, it's, it depends on how you calculate these things. But regardless, it's it's an enormous figure. And uh, the White House has said that it was the 21st time that the Defence Department has pulled weapons and other equipment off the shelves to deliver to Ukraine. So there is a consistency here. And Obviously, it's a statement of intent at this crucial moment in the war during the counteroffensive that America certainly is committed to provide the Ukrainians with the weapons that they need. The packages include the same types of ammunition and equipment that have helped Ukrainian forces beat back the forces during this counteroffensive. So, as I say, I think it's something that um, is, is timed and spoken about deliberately at this very significant military moment. And just staying on the diplomatic front for a moment... Uh Olaf Scholz has been saying some very interesting things. He had a 90-minute long telephone call, apparently, with uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, Francis, can you talk us through what did Scholz say after this call? Yes, yeah, so it's worth saying that we've obviously spoken at length about the calls that Emmanuel Macron, the French president, had with Putin earlier on in the war and, and since. But actually, Olaf Scholz has been talking to him, and we've got quite some interesting remarks by the German Chancellor of a 90-minute telephone call with Putin that took place yesterday. Uh, he's told journalists about 
an exchange that he had and he said sadly i cannot tell you that the impression has grown that it was a mistake to begin the war obviously remarking there about putin there was no indication that new attitudes are emerging uh, he urged the russian leader to seek a diplomatic solution based on a ceasefire a complete withdrawal of russian forces and respect for the territorial integrity and sovereignty of ukraine but as I say, it doesn't sound like there has been significant movement in terms of the kind of conversations that are taking place. At least that's not what European leaders have measured in the tone of Putin. It seems defiance. Now, of course, that is not to say that there isn't a shift in uh, in Russia and an understanding about the scale of the catastrophe that currently confronts them. But clearly at this moment, he is still banking on Europe beginning to really suffer and feel the impact of this war at home over the coming months and thinks that a strong front is better than one that appears to be manoeuvring for a ceasefire at this stage. Um, either that, of course, or Putin really is deluded and is receiving inaccurate information, which we shouldn't dismiss out of hand, but I think is less likely than the former option. Thank you very much, Francis. Uh, yesterday, we heard from the Telegraph's Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, who's in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, uh, ahead of the much-anticipated uh, first meeting since the invasion of Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping. Um, can I ask both of you, uh, just potentially before we get into the meeting itself and what came out of it, just for a bit of a historical overview of Chinese-Russian uh, relations, uh, ju- ju- just to set this up before we sort of look at how this meeting went and whether from either side you, you could deem it a success. Uh, Roland, would you like to talk us through this? Uh, Russian-Chinese relations go back a while, of course. You know, you'll know that there is a, a border in Siberia um, and Russian expansion came up against China Um you know, over, over recent centuries, really. Um, and it has not always been a very cuddly relationship. Um, even following the, um, the Chinese Revolution over the Second World War, when they both became members of the, the, the communist camp, uh, there was uh, the famous Sino-Soviet split. Um, there was a brief war um, in the 1960s on the frontier, um, which the Soviets won. Um, it's... Um, so despite them being ostensibly in the same camp in the Cold War, that was a dramatic shift. In fact, um, uh, you, you can look at the, the Vietnamese invasion of um, Cambodia uh, in, in the late 70s, which deposed the Khmer Rouge. Um, that all links back to this kind of Soviet versus Chinese competition um, going on. Nonetheless, today, um, I, I think it's fair to say that you know, President Putin and President Xi see themselves broadly in the same camp. And it is in this camp that shares this um, opposition, dismay to uh, American dominance in the world, a sense that um, there should be what, what the Russians call a, mo- a multipolar world. This is, a, this is the kind of go-to crutch for, for Russian diplomatic speak for the past couple of decades and that basically means um look we're, we're fed up of this period of, of western dominance and um we, we should be we should have a right to you know the old spheres of influence um we used to have and i think there's clear there's clear common ground there i mean don't don't underplay this that there is a common ground and and just before this invasion happened um putin and she had a meeting and they released the russians released this extraordinary document um, it's on the Kremlin's website. Go and read it. Um, and it's all about how, 
you know, we all, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, right? But, but the gist is we will march arm in arm to, you know, change the, the order of the world and, and we understand concerns and so on and so forth. And it was, it, it seemed at the time to be a kind of statement of, okay, we both understand what we, what we want in this great big confrontation with the West and we're going to have each other's backs and we're going to help each other out. Um, I'm, I'm just going to add one thing about, about the kind of internal context. So in the Cold War... Um, the Soviet Union was definitely the stronger partner. Um, that is reversed, and it's reversed to a degree that over all my time in Russia for the past, you know, 10, 15 years, whatever, you know, kind of Putin-era Russia, there's always been this, it's this theme that comes up occasionally. Oh, what are the Chinese going to do about Siberia? Oh, they bought a lot of land. Oh, did you hear about the Chinese? They, um, they, they, they invested in that, you know, in in whatever I don't know, cucumber farm in in Krasnoyarsk or, or whatever. Um, oh, oh, have you heard the Chinese have these textbooks that says that, that Siberia is part of China? Is this, is this kind of long running, low level anxiety about you know we 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 are the weaker partner these days, and 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 what designs are the Chinese going to have on us? Um, and it's it's always it's never been as prominent as the kind of what we can do about the west and restoring our, our loss of status in the cold war but it's it's always been there um and i think the dynamic that we saw um in samarkand you know confirms this status of beijing is very much the senior partner these days moscow is is more of the junior partner well, even the body language, I mean, you could see Putin sort of slightly hunched, reading his notes, looking down and see sort of sitting back, beaming away, smiling. It, it did. It, you could see where the power had really shifted to in the room. Francis is nodding intensely. Would you like to come in? Yeah, it was remarkable. And I agree that it's actually one of those uh, rare examples where it's actually worth seeing in video form rather than the printed word, because it is fascinating, the body language. I think it's worth picking up on also what was actually said by both parties. So President Xi, Putin acknowledged that he has questions and concerns. So an acknowledgement that the Chinese um, have concerns around what is going on in Ukraine, that in and of itself speaks volumes, I think. It was meant to be a chance, this, for both presidents to deepen ties and present a strong united anti-Western alliance. But it was clear, I think, that it almost apologetically, Putin was having to say, look, I know I've messed up here. Um, and uh, I think, you know, he said, we highly appreciate the balanced position of our Chinese friends in relation to the Ukrainian crisis. Well, balanced position. It sounds as if they're trying to stay out of it rather than being broadly in favour of it. If, if the Russians were expecting this to be uh, a moment when China would fully back what Russia is doing, then they will be sorely disappointed because it wasn't that. And yet, I think there's been too much of a dismissal of the remarks made by the Chinese, which weren't actually as vague as I think um, some have reported. Um, they did still pledge strong support, and I'm quoting there, for Russia's core interests, but didn't make any reference to Ukraine. She said, China is willing to work with Russia to demonstrate its responsibility as a major country, play a leading role and inject stability into a turbulent world. He said both Mr. Putin and himself advocated 
a fairer and more equitable international order, which obviously speaks to Roland's point around this fairer in their definition is one that does not have uh, Western and American dominance at its heart. But I say that language there, I think, is more robust than some have um uh, have commented on but nonetheless the fact that Ukraine was not explicitly discussed the fact that Putin was forced to essentially uh, acknowledge questions and concerns I think is very significant and something that no doubt echoes the kind of concerned conversations taking place behind closed doors between Chinese and Russian diplomats. Thank you Francis and just on that as you, as you mentioned China um, talk, the Chinese talked about Russia's contribution to the security in the region and we know we've talked about this talked about the intervention the Russian intervention in Kazakhstan earlier this year Um, but there's been more violence breaking out across the stands. Um, Roland can you tell us a little bit about this and maybe put it into context for us? Well I haven't been following it closely but we have renewed fighting uh, today which has been building up over several days um, on the Kyrgyzstan Tajikistan border do not ask me to lay out the um, the complexities of that particular conflict. Um, but what you should know is that Russia has been the center of gravity um, for Central Asia, I mean, you know, since the Tsars, right, and, and even post-Soviet times. So um, Russia for a long time, well, it still maintains um, a large base in Tajikistan. It's called the 201st. Um, a large number of them have actually been sent to Ukraine. Um, I understand. Um, And they had responsibility for for Tajik border security. The point is this. um, While Russia was strong, it did act, as empires often do, as as a stabilizing force, as a guarantor of stability. And we've seen it in Armenia and Azerbaijan. And Russia was Armenia's security guarantee. Um, And I think there is no way you can look at this this massive Azerbaijani attack on, on Armenia last week. In, in any other way than as taking advantage of a moment of Russian weakness. Um, when empires crumble, when the center is weak, things often get bloody. Um, this is a, I, I know a Russian historian who specializes in this, actually. <laughs> um, and and I, think, I think he kind of uses it to kind of... I think he has a soft spot for the concept of empire. But he's right. I mean, there's, there's a... This, this is a rule of thumb. Right. Um, and, you know, there is no way I don't think there's any way of getting around the fact that what has just happened uh, around Kharkiv has been noticed everywhere. Um, it is a blow to Russia's credibility. Um, their forces are, you know, I mean, who, who was it the other day who, who kept in waiting? Was that of Tajikistan? Kept in, Kyrgyzstan, the president of Kyrgyzstan, keeping Putin waiting. So, so for those of you who, who have not had the pleasure of covering um, Vladimir Putin's official meetings. The Kremlin press pool um, make a point of carrying their own snacks with them. These are the journalists who who are are dedicated to following the Kremlin around, right? Because you know he's going to be late. It's been something he's always done. Um, It's absolutely exhausting. The first time it happened to me, um, I think it was... I think it was in Sochi for the... um, Russian Railways Conference. Now, this is just a small anecdote, but it it illustrates it, right? So um, there I was uh, as a young reporter covering transportation business, right? So Russian Railways is having this big conference and and, and they were there talking about, oh, should Russia privatize its railways? Um, Should it use the British model? Should it do this? What about how much subsidies does it need? All of this dry stuff. And then suddenly there's a phone call. Putin's coming down. The guy who ran Russian Railways was 
one of Vladimir Putin's um, closest old friends from his um, KGB days, and they had a dacha together up in St. Petersburg. And he was the king of this conference. I mean, like, you know, Vladimir Yakunin, he was, he was like, you know, the James Bond villain in, in, his, in his lair. Um, and his face just changed. Oh, my God, the boss is coming. A panic ensues. He just, the whole atmosphere changes. And then we're waiting for Vladimir Putin to show up the next day. And my God, he kept us waiting. And we were, you know, the press is sitting there kind of, this security thing. So you're into a press room and you're, you're waiting for, you run out of water, you run out of cookies. The Kremlin pool, who've covered Putin all the time, well, they were ready. Right? So I'm just telling that story because it is, it is one of his classic, classic games. Make other people wait. To see someone else doing that to him is, I mean, for me, maybe I'm a bit too invested, but for me, it's pretty significant. Just very quickly, would that be noticed in Russia then? Presumably that clip is not going out on Russian news. I, I, I wouldn't know. I mean, probably not. I mean, state state media is still very much, you know, informed. And every time we talk, we talk a lot about like the Telegram channels and the war bloggers and the radicals, right? That is not what ordinary Russians are getting on, on, on Channel One. I, I just want to pick up on one thing that Roland was saying there, which is I completely agree that, that when there is a weakness in the centre, that that usually... It, it, people will take advantage of that people and and nations history shows you that time and time again i think high level conversations that will be taking place in governments around the world will be what will it mean this shift and decline in russian power and one way of course that things could play out and perhaps we're even already seeing evidence of that is that russia becomes something of a vassal state to china that the reliance on Chinese, sorry, that the reliance on Chinese support, whether that be military or financial, in terms of them purchasing energy and other things, will mean that Russia, to Roland's point, formerly the dominant communist or Soviet power of the world. Um, will now be subservient to China. What will that mean for the shifting tectonic plates of international affairs? Russia is an enormous country, and it is one that, at least in part of its history, has always had a foot in Europe. If that is then a country that effectively is manipulatable by the emerging superpower of China, what does that mean? And I think it will be a concern. And I think there will be a school of thought that will be saying and will could well prove influential in the months and years ahead to say, look, this has been a humiliation for Russia. What we cannot afford is that the scale of the humiliation is such that they become completely and utterly dependent on China. And thus what has to be done is in some way to make Russia return to the diplomatic European Western fold, at least in dialogue. Now, regular listeners will know my issues with that, but I only flag it as I think it will be something that will be a point of conversation in the months and years ahead. As I say, those who will be saying that in effect we have to not punish Russia as much as is required for fear of what that will mean in their reliance on China in the long term. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Um, is there anything else we haven't covered that you think is important to mention for our listeners ahead of the weekend? Well, we mentioned Germany earlier, and I just wanted to flag an interesting 
furore that's broken out in Germany around the remarks by Germany's top military chief. He's been criticised by some as uh, having a stunningly poor analysis of the Ukraine war after he claimed that Russia was capable of opening a second front against NATO. So this General Zorn cited the threat of a second front as a reason for Germany's reluctance to send more weapons to Kyiv. So he said Putin is capable of opening this front even though 60% of Russian army forces are tied up in Ukraine, they still have uncommitted capacity. If Putin ordered a general mobilisation, he would not have personnel problems either. Now, as regular listeners to all this podcast will know, this is very highly contestable indeed, um, not only from the perspective of, of course, journalists who've been following this, but other very significant military figures Ben Hodges, former commander of US forces in Europe between 2014 and 2017, has claimed that this shows, as I say, a stunningly poor analysis of Russian capabilities that unfortunately reflects much of German elite thinking. He goes on, Finland alone would crush Russian forces, while Lithuania, Poland would smother Kaliningrad in a week. So, as I get to say, this speaks to the general astonishment among military experts at these remarks by the German military chief. Uh, Gustav Gressel, who's a security expert at the European Council on Foreign Relations, has told our paper that they, this, these remarks amounted to an attempt to put a gloss on Germany's own fears. The Social Democrats don't want to deliver more weapons and now they're pulling out every excuse. Um, That was the quote that we got from him. So, as I say, I don't want this to be by me um, mentioning this to be me sort of banging Germany. Goodness knows I've done enough of that in uh, in recent months, Um, because actually I do think that the contrary to popular perception in recent months, Germany has delivered significant amounts of arms and equipment to Ukraine to aid it in its fight. The volume of arms actually exceeds that of every other country aside from the United States and the United Kingdom of Great Britain. So I'm not trying to do that, but I think this is insignificant because these kind of figures in Germany do represent a large swathe of of common opinion, which is still, I think, a hangover from the Cold War when Russia was, or the Soviet Union was, of course, very closely controlling of large parts of, of Germany that they still see it in many ways as this great power, the spectre of the Soviet. And they have not quite psychologically moved on from that. And that has had significant implications on this war so far. I think Germany is, as I say, its position and acknowledgement of what is going on is improving. But nonetheless, there is still this deeply ingrained thinking about Russia, which they are yet to shake off. And until they do, I'm not optimistic about this profound change of understanding of Russia that that we've been calling for for a long time. Well, thank you very much for that, Francis. I know you've been talking a lot, but I have to ask you for your final thoughts. Just uh, what should our listeners be paying attention to ahead of the weekend? Well, of course, the big story here in Britain is the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Indeed, I've been covering that quite a lot this week Um, and so that's why I've not been able to uh, appear on the podcast as often as I would Um, but I wanted to mention it in relation to Ukraine because we are hearing rumours not yet confirmed but rumours that Vladimir Zelensky's wife will attend the funeral on Monday so 
if that is true and Elena Zelenska, the first lady, does attend, I think it sends a very clear message, not only from the Ukrainian perspective, that they see this as an opportunity to be reaching out to the numerous other diplomatic figures who will be attending. We're expecting numerous former American presidents, the current American president, Joe Biden. Hundreds of, uh, of ambassadors will be there. So it's a statement of intent from them at this moment of crisis if she does come. But on the other hand as well, I think it shows the the fact that we know about this, shows that Britain sees it as important that Ukraine is part of this and is seen publicly to be part of this. Um, what we have seen since the war began is a huge lifting in the significance and placing of Ukraine in the European family. And I don't mean that in the European Union family necessarily, but in the broader understanding of an idea of Europe, of which Britain is still a part, um, Brexit aside, there is still an acknowledgement that we are part of a European family. And Ukraine are now part of that, despite what um, what Putin may think. And as I say, if she does attend or any major Ukrainian figures attend, then it will be symbolic of that shift that we've seen ever since the invasion back in February. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message, and we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, 